As you know, if you've been here the last several weeks, I'm in a series on eschatology. Eschatos is the Greek word for last, last thing. So when we talk about eschatology, one of the major doctrines, that's the study of last things. What's going to happen at the end of the world? So I've entitled this series, God's Revelation Concerning the Future. God's Revelation Concerning Your Future, maybe we could say. And we've been looking at some key events after the introduction there and the importance of prophecy because it does occupy a large place in both Old Testament and New Testament literature. After that lesson, we looked at the rapture, which is talked about in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 13 through 18, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 51 and 52. That's part of the parousia, the Greek word parousia, which means the Lord's return, the Lord's coming. But the Lord doesn't come to the earth in the rapture. He appears in the, in the sky, he appears in the air, and believers are taken up. As we read there, first of all, those who are buried in the graves are resurrected, translated, transformed, reconstituted, maybe we would say, and they go to heaven, we follow them in a nanosecond. So that's the rapture. And after that takes place, then there is the judgment seat of Christ. We looked at that. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 are the two key passages. There are others that deal with the judgment. This is, this is the judgment of the saved. Remember, there's a judgment of dedication. That's for believers. There's a judgment of damnation. That's for unbelievers. This is called the judgment seat of Christ. This is called the great white throne judgment. One takes place early during the tribulation period. The other takes place at the end of the millennial kingdom. The judgment seat of Christ is not where we are judged and punished as believers because all our sins are under the blood. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1 says. This is a judgment of rewards where we receive our reward because we will be reigning and ruling with Christ in the millennial kingdom. We're judged, we receive our crowns, we cast them at his feet at some point, and we rule and reign with Christ. But then after that, after we've received our rewards, is the married supper of the Lamb. And we spent some time on that last week. The married supper of the Lamb, while there is chaos on earth, while there is judgment taking place on earth, and God's probably the only one that we would say really is really good at multifunctioning, you know, multitasking. Sometimes I describe multitasking as screwing several things up at one time, okay? That's what happens when we multitask. God can multitask. He's in heaven celebrating the, the, the marriage of the Lamb. We talked about that, the marriage feast in, in the, the whole Jewish custom system where there is a betrothal period up to a year or more, and then the husband comes, picks up his bride, and then the celebration begins. Jesus betrothed the church to himself. He made the dowry payment when he died on the cross. Now he's coming back. John chapter 14 says, I prepare a place for you. And if I prepare a place for you, I will come again, receive you unto myself. He's preparing a place for us in heaven. He's going to come back for us and we'll enjoy the marriage supper of the land, that great, great feast that takes place while the earth is in judgment in chaos of the tribulation. That brings us to this point that we're at today. Key events, the tribulation. So we're going to look at the tribulation here today. This morning, in large part, 
modern man has rejected God. I think that's a fair statement. In large part, modern man has rejected God and the supernatural. If science can't explain it, they say, then it didn't happen. It can't happen. Supernatural is dismissed out of hand. Because of our advancement in some areas, science, technology, medicine, 21st century man tends to think of himself as God. He tends to think of himself as God. We think we are sovereign over nature. We can warm and cool the planet. We think that we're sovereign in the area that that we can decide our gender. Even after we're born, we can decide, well, I want to be a man or I want to be a boy. I want to be a girl. Even if you're born in a different gender. We think we can decide how long we will live. The banishment of God from 21st century America or even the culture around the world echoes Satan's boast to Eve, you shall be as God's. That's what he told Eve, and that's what he's telling modern man. Let's look at this verse from Second Peter chapter 3, verses 3 through 9. I want to read to you. We use the New King James here in our teaching and preaching, but Josh is putting it up on the screen in the NIV because it clarifies, I think, some of the nuances of some of the words. So let me read to you what Second Peter says. As we look at prophecy describing the Lord's return, we must remember what he said about our day. This is what he says, 2 Peter 3, 3 through 9. Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come. Scoffing, laughing, ridiculing is the idea. Ridiculing and following their own desire. Scoffing and following their own desire. They will say, where is the coming Where is the second coming? Where is the coming that he promised? Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. There's nothing new. Nothing is changing. But they deliberately forget. In other words, they push out of their mind. They block from their remembrance. They deny the reality of. They put out of their mind, they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being. God spoke ex nihilo. He spoke the words and they came into being. The worlds, the planets, and then further throughout creation. God spoke and the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water. That's exactly what the Bible says, that the land was separated from the waters that were all over the earth. The earth was formed out of water and by water. And yet, by these waters also the world of that time was deluged, overrun, buried. The flood was deluged and it was destroyed in the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So he says, scoffers, deniers of Scripture, those that don't believe that there's a sovereign God are going to say, don't believe that he's coming back. You know, everything has happened. He reminds them, God spoke to the world. He destroyed the world at one point, and he's coming again to do it again, this time by fire. With the Lord, but do not forget this one thing, dear friends, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years. People think, well, time's going, time's going. The Lord's not coming back. Remember, with God, time has no markings. A day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises. The King James says, is not slack 
in keeping his promises. God's timetable is precise. It is perfect. It is written down and it will be fulfilled. God is not slack concerning his promises as some men count slackness. But instead, this is why he has postponed his coming, maybe we would say. Instead, he is patient with you. Not wanting any to perish. God is slow with his return because he wants to fill up the church. He wants to fill up those who are a part of the elect, those who are going to be saved. He wants to see every man saved that will possibly turn to him in truth. He is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but for everyone to come to repentance. Just as the Bible said, That's exactly where our culture is, not believing in the Lord's return, not even believing in the Lord. Today, we want to look at one of those great epic periods of God's judgment upon mankind, known as the tribulation. So open your Bibles to Daniel. I want you to turn there with me. It'll be on the screen, but I want you to turn to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel is known as the keystone, the cornerstone of all biblical prophecy. So we're going to look, first of all, Israel's prophetic calendar. Israel's prophetic calendar. Daniel being the cornerstone of prophecy, Daniel chapter 9. Now, there's several prophecies in the book of Daniel. Remember, he talked about the pagan, the Gentile kings that would rule with that statue, the head of gold and shoulders of brass, and on down all the way to the feet and toes that were a mixture of clay and iron, the Roman Empire, the Greek Empire, the Persian Empire, the Babylonian Empire. So he gives us several prophecies, but I want us to look at this one. In particular, Daniel chapter 9 outlines for Israel their future with specific details. He outlines their entire future with specific timelines that only our sovereign God could put into writing and fulfill. In chapter 9, we read of the vision, and I'm kind of giving you the preface here, the vision that the angel Gabriel came and gave to Daniel that came from God. Now, Daniel wrote it down, and we have it in holy writ. He comes to him and says, this is the future of your people from God. At that time, of course, Babylon had conquered all of the ancient Middle East, including Israel. Their cities were destroyed and sacked. The people had been transported as refugees to Babylon. And the Jews are saying, hey, wait a minute, but what what about the promises that God gave to Abraham that we would hold this land and the descendants would be like sand on the seashore? What about the promises to David that there would be a king that would reign forever from his throne? What happened to the promises of God? That's why this prophecy is written. God says, hang on, hang on, it's going to happen. Daniel chapter 9, starting at verse 24. Seventy weeks are determined for your people, specifically the Jewish people, for your people and for your holy city, Jerusalem, to finish the transgressions, to make an end of sin, to make reconciliation for iniquity. Now, you can't read those three phrases without thinking, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. To bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until the Messiah, the Prince, from that point till the Messiah comes, he says, there shall be seven weeks and then 62 more weeks. The streets shall be built again, the walls, 
even in troublesome times. And after the 62 weeks, Messiah will be cut off. He'll be killed. But not for himself. He doesn't die as a martyr or as a criminal. He dies as a savior, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come, the people of the prince who is to come, speaking of the Antichrist, shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. We know who destroyed Jerusalem, 70 AD. Titus did, who went on to become the emperor of Rome. So the, the prince of the people to come shall destroy the sanctuary. And the end of it shall be with a flood. And till the end of the war, desolations are determined. Then he shall confirm a covenant. So this prince of the people to come shall make a covenant with many for one week. Remember, weeks, we'll talk about that. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to the sacrifice and the offerings that take place in the temple. So we know the temple is rebuilt, sacrifices and offerings are taking place, but he cuts that off. He stops that from happening after the middle of the week, three and a half years, 42 months, 1260 days, the Bible tells us. And on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined. Consummation, conclusion, the end of all things is determined. If is poured out on the desolate. So we'll stop reading there. Israel's prophetic calendar. Here's the cornerstone of the future for the people of Israel. Let's break it down. Let's understand it. God announced that there were, what does it say here? Verse 24, 70 weeks are determined for thy people. About thy people, verse 24. That was specific to Israel. The word translated week in verses 24 through 27, because it's used several times, is actually a Hebrew word for seven. So write that down. The word week is actually a Hebrew word for seven. So we could read verse 24, go back to your Bible, look at verse 24, as 77s are determined for your people. That's literally what it says in the original language. 77s are determined for your people or against your people. The expression a week in the Jewish understanding in Scripture can mean a period of seven days or a period of seven years. Now, this is critical for you to understand that and remember it because it'll help you. This passage will help you understand all of the rest of what we're going to talk about. It can mean a week of days or a week of years. And in this context, it's referring, obviously, to a week of years. And he says, this is the big picture. This is the big calendar. You've got 70 times 7 years determined for the nation of Israel. What is that? 490 years. He says, I'm going to tell you, the rest of Israel's history is determined in 490 years. That's the truth. That's what the Bible says. 490 years is the rest of Israel's history. We are given the breakdown of these years. So let's look at it again. We're told specifically when Israel's countdown clock would begin and when it would end. Look at verse 25. It states, from the commandment to rebuild Jerusalem till the coming of the Messiah would be seven weeks. That's 49 years. Seven weeks, seven times seven, 49 years. Plus, then it's kind of Makes you scratch your head at first until you understand it. And then there will be 62 more weeks or 434 years. 62 times 7, 434. So why that breakdown? Let's talk a little bit about that. So it's a total of 483 years. 
Israel's got 490 years that I'm going to work with them. I'm giving you the first 483, which is only seven years left after that. 483 from 490, of course, is seven. So we know that there's seven more years determined for Israel's future. But let's go back and, and let's revisit this breakdown. This one week or seven years is lacking from the total prophesied of 490 years that God promised Israel. We know that in history, both biblical history and secular history, the Jews were let go, but there wasn't a command to rebuild the walls until Artaxerxes. So take your Bible. I want you to see it for yourself because the Bible is very precise as we've talked about like in the destruction of Tyre and others. Let's turn to Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 2. And I want to read just a few verses here. Nehemiah was cupbearer to Artaxerxes. He was a part of the cabinet. And it came to pass in the month of Nisan, not the car, the month, and it came to pass in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. So Artaxerxes has been reigning 20 years now. And that's when this all takes place. King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, because that was part of his job, when wine was before him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. And I had never been sad in his presence before. And the king said to me, why are you so sad in your face, your countenance? This is nothing but sorrow of heart. This is not because you're sick, you're sorrowful. And he said, oh, king, live forever. You know, you're not supposed to be sad in front of the king, but I'll tell you why I'm sad. My people are living in a city, and the city is broken down and has no walls. They're very vulnerable to the marauding band that take over that region of the world. And the king says, I will give you permission to go back and rebuild the walls, and I will pay for it. Whatever you need, let me know. I'll underwrite it. So in the Bible tells us, as well as secular history, in the 20th year of Artaxerxes, and we know when Artaxerxes came to the throne, he came to the throne in uh, 465 B.C. His 20th year then of reigning is 445 B.C. That's when the clock starts. That's when God's time clock for Israel begins, 445 B.C. And he tells Daniel that's when Israel's 490 years begin. That was the start of the 77s or the 490 years that were allotted to Israel. Now, why would God break it down, that total of 483 years into two periods, 49 years, seven weeks, and then 62 weeks? Why is that? Well, he tells us right here in this passage. He says in verse 24, talks about the Messiah coming. He says, verse 25, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the Messiah the Prince will be cut off, there shall be seven weeks and then another 62 weeks. 49 years and then 434 years. This phrase is amplifying, explaining the earlier phrase about the 49 weeks. The streets shall be built again. The walls will be completed even in trouble some time. It took 49 years to complete the wall. Now we know Nehemiah built it and he got it halfway there up. But the complete building of the wall, what else does it say? And the streets to be paved, because remember the Babylonians destroyed everything. 
So it's going to take 49 years to completely rebuild the walls, the streets, to restore Jerusalem because they were living in troublesome time. And remember the Samballot and Tobiah and others that tried to stop them and that continued on. They tried to stop them from completing the wall. So it took them 49 years to really build the walls, build the uh, structures in Jerusalem and to repave the streets. So that's why he breaks that down, that 49 years. That's exactly what Jewish history tells us. It took him 49 years to rebuild Jerusalem. Verse 25, then the Jews lived in Jerusalem for another 434 years. They lived there for 434 years. Matter of fact, we sometimes call it the 400 silent years. Where after Malachi the prophet, all the way until John the Baptist burst upon the scene, 400 years. 434 years. You know, that's the 400 years. What about the 34? Well, that's Jesus' life. Well, the Messiah is cut off. So he says it'll be 434 years. Now, get this. Sir Robert Anderson, as well as many others, but let me quote from him. Sir Robert Anderson went into great deal in his book about this passage of Scripture and the historicity of it, of Jerusalem and the kings and dominions in that day. Sir Robert Anderson went into great detail in his classic book called The Coming Prince, explaining this prophecy's fulfillment. He calculated that 69 of the 70 weeks of years, leaving only one more week left, seven years, 69 of the 70 weeks of years were completed on the very day that Jesus entered Jerusalem in the triumphal entry. And then he was crucified that week. On the very day that he rode into Jerusalem, presented himself as king. And we know what day that was. We know exactly what day that was. He presented himself as king on the 10th day of Nisan, A.D. 32. And Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 9, tell us that. Jesus rides into Jerusalem, offers himself as king. He's rejected by the Jewish leadership. Within days now, they crucify him. Messiah is cut off, not for himself, but for his people, us included. The completion of those 69 weeks of the 70 weeks of Israel's history, 483 weeks have been done when they crucified Christ. Seven Years are left, one week is left, 483, 490 minus the 483 is 7. So the seventh week is still future, and we read about it in our Bibles. It's called the Great Tribulation, the seven years of tribulation. The 70th week is still future. It is the seven years of the tribulation. God's clock and his plan for Israel stopped, or at least it was put on pause, and like the snooze button on your alarm. It was put on pause with Israel. 483 years ran out, seven more years left. But they rejected their Messiah. And so God says, all right, I have another plan. I'm going to work with the Gentiles. This is the church age, the Bible tells us. And Paul unfolds that. God's clock was stopped with Israel and it will be continued when the nation rejected and crucified his son. The Messiah will be cut off but not for himself, verse 26 says. At that point, God ceased to work with Israel as a nation. He's still saving individuals or others. So he's still working with individuals, but he stopped working with the nation of Israel and he's calling a new people to himself, Gentiles. 
And Paul expounds upon that in the New Testament, but if you want to read it, Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 10, he says, this is a mystery that the Old Testament believers didn't understand, that the Old Testament Jews didn't understand, that when they rejected the Messiah, the mystery of the church begins, and he is saving Gentiles. Praise God, because that includes you and me. And then when the church is removed from the world, when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, the Bible says, when all those of us who are, as God says, looking from heaven, we're elect. As the elect are saved and the church is filled with all the believers that are ever going to be saved in this dispensation, he raptures the church out of the world. And then right after that, or shortly after that, we don't have a time frame, he begins to work with the nation of Israel once again. And he's got seven years. Seven years he's going to work with Israel and he's going to purify Israel. They're going to turn to him as a nation in faith. They will look upon him whom they have pierced, and they will believe on him. And out of that come the 144,000 Jewish evangelists. And out of that come the two witnesses that proclaim during the first half of the tribulation. Then they're martyred. Then they're raised back to life. Then they're taken to glory. And then there's an angel that flies overhead and preaches the everlasting gospel, Revelation tells us. And a great harvest of souls takes place. God will deal once again with the nation of Israel to bring it to himself. And the purpose of the tribulation, at least in part, is to test Israel and to restore to Israel her trust in God and fellowship with God. Because at the beginning, what do they do? They put their trust in the Antichrist who promises them peace, and he signs a covenant with them. But halfway through that period of time, he breaks the covenant, and they realize we can't trust any man. By the way, it's interesting. Right now, our president, President Trump, has brokered three peace treaties with Israel's enemies, the surrounding Arab nations, that hasn't been done in, what, 70, 80, maybe 100 years. Three different nations have signed peace treaties with Israel, and Israel's feeling more comfortable with some of their enemies. Well, the Antichrist will come up on the scene, and he is going to get everyone to sign a peace treaty with Israel, including Russia, Gog and Magog. And then he's going to break it off. So let's look at the second idea that I have for you here this morning. God's promised wrath. The first from Daniel's God's prophetic calendar. This is God's promised wrath. And I want you to keep your hand in Daniel chapter 9, but turn with me to Revelation. And we're going to try and do the impossible, cover a number of verses and chapters in the book of Revelation before our time runs out. God's promised wrath. The tribulation does not begin with a rapture. And I think it's easy to get that confused sometimes. Doesn't mean when the rapture occurs, tribulation begins. That's not what the Bible says. We would assume it's very close proximity. But the Bible tells us that when Israel signs a peace treaty with a world leader that has promised them protection, that's when the tribulation begins. With this peace treaty signed by Israel and who becomes, we know, he is the Antichrist. The Antichrist promises to protect Israel from those that seek to destroy her. You know, here's this little tiny nation, small landmass called Israel, small relative people group, several million, but still very small, surrounded by the Arab nations and even Russia, Syria, other nations that want to destroy hundreds of millions of people. 
They're in a precarious position. And the Antichrist promises to protect Israel from those that seek to destroy it. Midway through that seven-year period, and the Bible uses terms that we can't mistake, three and a half years, 42 months, 1260 days. It uses all three of those terms in, in Daniel and in Revelation. The Antichrist breaks the treaty and demands that all mankind worship him. Look at verse 27. We're back in Daniel chapter 9. He says, he shall confirm a covenant, a treaty. He shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, in the middle of those seven, that seven-year period, in the middle of that week, 42 months, he shall break he shall bring an end to the sacrifices and the offering, and on the wing of abominations he shall make shall be one who makes desolation, even until the end, the consummation which is determined, and it will be poured out on the desolate. Okay? The tribulation is an intense time of suffering, intense time of, of judgment that is poured upon the earth. Much of the book of Revelation describes the cataclysmic, catastrophic judgment that God pours out upon the earth. Let me just give you the overview. The seal judgments in Revelation chapter 6. The seals of scrolls are broken open, and out of those scrolls, judgment is poured out upon the earth. Chapter 6 of Revelation, the seal judgment. The trumpet judgments are chapters 8 and 9. There's some interludes where God gives us a, it's bouncing back and forth. John's giving us the view of what's going on in heaven, what's going on in earth. But chapters 8 and 9 are the trumpet judgment. Trumpet sound, and then more wrath of God is poured out upon the earth. And then the bowl judgment is a picture of bowls being poured out of judgment upon the earth. Chapter 16 of Revelation. So you could almost say everything from chapter 4 almost through chapter 17 is the judgment of God upon the earth. This period is also called the time of Jacob's trouble. We understand that. Jacob was the father of the 12 tribes, Israel. It's the time of Jacob's trouble. And Satan is empowered to use a man. Satan empowers a man, and he's known as the Antichrist. That's the term that John uses more than any other term, the writer of the book of Revelation. The Antichrist. So he empowers this man. And Satan can do that. He empowers a man known as the Antichrist to war against God's people, Israel, and the people who are converted through the preaching of the evangelist and the angel and the two witnesses. And he declares war on them. Matter of fact, he says, you're going to die. You'll be martyred. You won't be able to buy, sell, food, you won't be able to travel. There's great limitations put on the believers, and they have the mark of the beast. We used to think, you know, 666, who wants to get that on their forehead? That's a, that's a bad mark to cover up with makeup, you know, or on your hand. But now we understand, you know, they do with dogs, they do with prisoners. They put a chip in there the size of a rice. And there's places now in America and around the world where you can use that and buy your groceries. You just, just scan it, and it has your, your info on it. There's the mark of the beast. This period is Jacob's trouble. And, and he wars against God's people to destroy as many of them as he can. Remember, Satan is the author of death. You stop and apply that to our own culture. People who want to kill babies, that's Satan behind that. People who want to kill the old people, that's Satan behind that. 
People that just constantly want to foment wars, that want to foment chaos. Satan is behind all of that. He is the author of death. God is the author of life. That's why we value life. The Imago Dei, we're created in the image of God. We value life. He is called also the little horn. Look with me. You've got your hand there in Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 7, verse 8. He's called the little horn. In Daniel chapter 9, verse 26, he is called the prince that shall come. He'll be out of the people that destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD, the Romans. He'll come out of that. So we assume he's a, some kind of a charismatic European leader. He'll be the prince of the people that shall come again, the resurrection of the Roman Empire. And he's called the man of sin, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3, because he is causing mankind to sin in a huge way. He will make a seven-year pact, contract, covenant with Israel. He promises to protect them from their enemies. But after three and a half years, he will break that pact, Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. What does it say? He will magnify himself. You get your hand there in Daniel, Daniel chapter 8, verse 11. Let me just read a few verses to you. He even exalted himself as high as the prince of hosts, and by him the daily sacrifices will be taken away, and the place of his sanctuary, God's place of sanctuary, will be cast down. Look at verse 25, same chapter, 8, 25. Through his cunning... He shall cause deceit to prosper under his rule. He's going to be very deceptive. He's not going to win wars by armies. He's going to win wars by peace trees and pact, but he's going to deceive people. And he shall exalt himself in his heart, and he shall destroy many in their prosperity. We'll we'll have some measure of prosperity, but he's going to be destroying people in their prosperity. Daniel chapter 11, verses 36 and 37. I can only give you the highlights. 36 and 37 of Daniel chapter 11. Then the king shall do according to his own will. He shall exalt and magnify himself above every god, shall speak blasphemies against the God of gods, Jehovah God, our God, speak blasphemies against the God of God and shall prosper till the wrath has been accomplished for what has been determined shall be done. And he shall regard neither the God of his fathers nor the desire for women nor regard any God for he shall exalt himself above them all. But in their place he shall honor a God of fortresses and a God which his fathers did not know new technology. He shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and pleasant things. The Bible says he shall speak against God. Daniel chapter 7 verse 8, Daniel chapter 7 verse 20, and verse 25. He's going to exalt himself, blaspheme the true God, set himself up to be worshiped, and those who won't worship him will die. They'll be martyred. And he receives his power from Satan. Look with me, Revelation chapter 13. Look at verses 4 through 8. Revelation chapter 13, verses 4 through 8. So they worshiped the dragon. This is people on earth during the tribulation. They worshiped the dragon, that's Satan, who gave authority to the beast, the Antichrist, and they worshiped the beast as well. There's, there's an evil trinity 
This is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. There's an evil trinity that Satan sets up. He's the dragon, he's Satan. There's the Antichrist, and there's the false prophet whose job is to convince people to worship the beast. That's what the Holy Spirit does for people. He convinces us that we're sinners and need to worship Christ. There's an evil trinity that Satan mocks and imitates God. Verse 4, they worshiped the dragon, gave authority to the beast, and they worshiped the beast, saying, who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? Who would want to contend with this individual? And he was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. And he was given authority to continue for 42 months. That's three and a half years, one half of the last week of Israel's history. Then he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God and his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. And it was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. So for a period of time, we lose the war. We're not here, but the saints that follow us, the believers who follow us, and they lose the war. And to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, those, it was granted to him to make war with the saints to overcome them, and authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, nation. He's ruling the world. Verse 8, all who dwell on the earth will worship him, whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. He receives his power from Satan. He desires worship. He will institute the mark of the beast. And that happens here in the same chapter. Look, look at a couple more verses, verses 13 through 18. He performs great signs. So he even makes fire come down from heaven. Remember, that's exactly what Elijah did by God's permission. He makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of all men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he has granted to be able to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image of the beast. He wants to receive personal worship, but you can worship my liking as well, my icon as well. And he was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. So he's got an enforcer. He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive the mark on their right hand or on their forehead that no one may buy, sell, except those who have the mark or the name of the beast who pledged allegiance to him, or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of man. His number is 666. He will halt the Jewish sacrifices that are taking place in the temple halfway through the tribulation. Daniel 9, 27. Daniel chapter 12, verse 11. We don't have time to turn to all of these. And he will seat himself in the temple as the object of worship. Second Thessalonians. Chapter 2, verse 4, says that he will demand worship. Those who won't worship him are going to die. Even though the Antichrist, and here's the good news in this very sombering, dark picture, even though the Antichrist persecutes the saints and believing Israel, Revelation 13, 7, even though he persecutes them to the death, God seals. By the way, in ancient culture, seal meant ownership, it meant protection. God seals 144,000 Jewish evangelists. Jews are good at selling. 
Jews are good at convincing people. They kind of missed it for the last 2,000 years. They should have been selling the world on Jesus. But out of every tribe, 12,000 are earmarked by God, and there's God's seals upon them. God will protect them. The Antichrist can't stop them with the amazing power that he has. He can't stop them from preaching the gospel. The everlasting gospel, and that's what it says in Revelation chapter 7, verse 4. Write that one down. In addition to those 144,000 Jewish evangelists, there are two witnesses who prophesied to the watching world. It says all the world sees them. It must be on TV. All the world sees them preach, and the world hates them. The world hates the preaching of the truth until they come to conversion. So these two evangelists, we're not told who they are. Many would speculate that it's Enoch and Elijah because they're the only two men who were both preachers who lived and never died. They were raptured and taken to heaven. Maybe it's those two men. It would seem likely Enoch, pre-Diluvian days, Elijah in Israel's apostasy, Old Testament prophets who never die. And it says in Revelation chapter 11, why don't you turn there? I know you're not in a hurry. And neither am I. (laughs) Revelation chapter 11, starting at verse 3, it says, And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy. That's the idea of preaching. 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth, half of the tribulation period, three and a half years. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before God of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from them. He protects and seals 144,000. These guys are able to be protected by God. And it says what? That fire proceeds from their mouth and it devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. These have power to shut up heaven. No rain falls during their prophecy for three and a half years. And they have the power over the waters to turn into the blood. To strike the earth with all kinds of plagues as often as they desire to show that they're authoritatively speaking for God, just as Moses did doing the plagues of Egypt. This is from God. And when they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the streets of the great city, which is spiritually called Sodom in Egypt where our Lord was crucified. We know where that is. Then those from the peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies for three and a half days and not allow them to be buried and put in the graves. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them. Why? Because they were convicted. Now they're gone. And their dead bodies will be put in the grave. They dwell on the earth and will rejoice, make merry, send gifts to one another. It's like Christmas time because those two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. Then after that three and a half days, the breath of life from God, inspiration comes from God, and entered into them and they stood on their feet and great fear fell upon all them that saw them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven. This is a picture of the rapture, isn't it? Saying, come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud and the enemy saw them in the same hour. There was great earthquakes just when Jesus died. And the tenth of the city fell, and the earthquake, 7,000 people were killed, and the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. So it has effect. Their preaching has effect. The Bible tells us these two Old Testament prophets, along with the 144,000 plus the angel, are proclaiming the gospel. 
and there's great effect. Remember, all the believers were taken out of the world at the rapture. So God's starting like ground zero, starting with nothing again. And building a body of believers, we wouldn't call it the church, because the church has been raptured, but a body of believers. And as a result of that, the preaching of these two witnesses, the 144,000, they bear much fruit. Now I'll close with this, Revelation chapter 7. They bear much fruit. Let me just read a couple verses. Revelation 7, starting at verse 13. Then one of the elders said to me, John, who's seeing this vision in heaven, who are these arrayed in white robes and where did they come from? And I said to him, sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. They washed their robes. They made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Jesus' blood washes us white, not red. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. There's a temple in heaven. And he who sits on the throne will dwell amongst them, and they shall neither hunger anymore, thirst anymore. Remember, because they can't buy, sell, travel, etc. And the sun shall not strike them, nor the heat. For the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them, care for them, and lead them to the living fountains of water, and God shall wipe away every tear from their eye. All those who suffered during the tribulation are going to find comfort in heaven. God will wipe away every tear from their eye. And the Bible tells us there is an innumerable host of people who are converted. Think of our population of the world as it continues to grow. We don't know when the tribulation is going to happen. But there's an innumerable host of people that are saved in the tribulation. Matter of fact, most Bible believers, preachers would say, probably the greatest soul harvest in the history of the world. More people may be being saved at that time than maybe everyone preceding that time. A great soul harvest because of the preaching of the angel overhead and the 144,000 Jews evangelists and the two witnesses. And the Holy Spirit has to be working. He's been taken away in the church, but he has to be working maybe like he did in the Old Testament. So there's a great soul harvest. I'm thankful for that. I'm going to be gone. I'm going up in the rapture. I hope you are. But I got a lot of family that's lost. I got a lot of brothers and sisters that don't know Jesus Christ. I'm hoping when we're gone and the Antichrist is reigning, they'll say, what he told us is right. It's the truth. And even if we got to die, even if we got to be martyrs, let's put on our faith with Jesus Christ and let's trust him as Savior. Great harvest of souls. Jesus says this, Matthew chapter 24, verses 21 through 25, speaking of this period. For then there will be great tribulation, such as not has been since the beginning of the world until this time. No, nor ever shall be, because the world is ruined when the judgments are done. Nor shall ever be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. No flesh would be alive, because it's so all-encompassing. No flesh would have lived, but for the elect's sake, for those who are going to be saved, but for those that God had his mark upon, not Satan's mark, but God's mark upon them, 
But for those, for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened because there's going to be a great soul harvest. God doesn't completely destroy all human flesh. If anyone says to you, look here, here's Christ, or there, do not believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive. It's a period of great deception. Wonders to deceive. If possible, they could deceive even the very elect. Jesus says, see, I told you this beforehand. Get ready. It's an awful period in human history. A period, an epic of great judgment. None of us have to go through that. None of us have to experience the tribulation because God's provided a way through his son for us to be saved and to be raptured out of this world. So if you don't know Christ in a personal way, yeah, you may know his name. You may say that you're even a Christian, but if you don't know him in a personal way, today is the day you should be saved because we don't know when the rapture is going to occur. And the Bible says in Thessalonians that Satan is given great power to deceive to deceive, and they will believe a lie. People are going to say, well, I don't know. We didn't need those people anyway. I don't know what happened to them. Maybe it was aliens or something that abducted them. But they're going to believe a lie. You don't want to believe the lie. You want to believe the truth. So if you're not saved, put your faith and trust in him. As believers, praise God. We have not been appointed unto wrath, Thessalonians 5.9 says, but unto salvation. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we ask today... Help us to think about eternity. Help us to think about your coming. Help us to be prepared and and to live for you. Lord, we don't know when it is. It's imminent, but you haven't told us when. But we believe that you're coming and you're coming soon. And we want to make our lives count. We want to make our witness strong. We don't want to be caught sleeping and be embarrassed and shamed when you come. So help us as believers. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.